we saw that there were now threats in the domain that we had to consider. This is Space Watch Daily, the place to get insights into this second great space race. I'm David Ariosto. That was the genesis that really led to why we now have a Space Force and a Space Command today, is the realization there's a threat as all of these other activities are surging and becoming uh, more common. We need to consider the threat as well. So that was the deputy commander of U.S. Space Command, a man by the name of Lieutenant John Shaw, and he was speaking at the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies about the need for Space Force. And it's Space Force that I wanted to talk about today. Actually, there are two things. The first one's pretty obvious about how it relates to national security. The second one, less so, but I think you'll see, as I start to sort of explain this, that intersection of public-private sector works and, and how it affects long-term strategy, particularly U.S. strategy. So let's start with the first one. This month, something pretty definitive happened. The U.S. Space Force kick-started its very first military unit devoted to knocking out, or, or at least targeting, I should say, satellites, uh, as well as ground stations of foreign powers. I'll talk about the, the satellites in a second, but the ground stations thing caught my eye because knocking out one of those is a pretty big deal. They're generally these hulking facilities. Uh, they're the product of international agreements that have taken years to, to, to make happen. They're positioned at all different places across the Earth so that essentially as the Earth spins, comms with satellites and spacecraft can continue uninterrupted. It's a sort of a line of sight thing in which a single station on Earth will eventually lose connectivity. But if you have several of them scattered around the globe, as the Earth turns, you don't lose that, that connectivity. Um, it's really essential for, for modern-day space infrastructure. Now, when you look ahead, when you look at some of the cutting-edge technologies like quantum satellite communications, that may render those kinds of stations obsolete in their current form. But for now, this is what we have and what a lot of the comms in space relies upon. You talk to military folks, um, both on the ground and in Washington, and they always talk about the need for situational situational awareness, right? You have this sort of information-rich battlefield, especially in places like Ukraine, um, the ability to stay connected, to, to do tracking, GPS, comms. All this is, is incumbent upon uh, a pretty healthy space sector, and these, these ground stations um, make it possible in a big way. I actually, as an aside, actually got a chance to head down to Patagonia to see China's newest ground station, and we traveled way out into the desert. Two planes, four or five hours of driving, and then, you know, finally you come upon this hulking, this massive uh, facility that the Chinese and, and, and Argentine government uh, agreed on a few years ago, um, essentially leasing about 500 acres of land to China. So in that context, it's, it's obvious why that ground station was important. All right, on to satellites portion of what the U.S., a space Force is now targeting specifically. You know, more broadly speaking, there's really no country in the world that has more satellites than the U.S. by a pretty wide margin. I mean, I think the U.S. has about six times as many as the next closest nation, which coincidentally is China. Um, that's, of course, starting to change. But here's the thing in terms of targeting satellites generally. Those larger classic geostationary satellites well, they're starting to be supplanted by 
thousands of smaller satellites, which means they're getting harder to target. I mean, even if you do, well, first of all, if you shoot them down by conventional means, all of a sudden you've now created all of this space debris, um, space junk, as they call it, which it starts to orbit and hinders your own ability to work up there. And, and frankly, it makes everything more dangerous for everyone. Because, I mean, remember, when you target a satellite through kinetic means, you know, a missile or something of that sort, you know, that junk just doesn't fall away or go out into space. It goes into orbit at thousands of miles an hour. And it can start uh, putting holes in ships. And, you know, NORAD actually tracks this stuff pretty closely. But let's say, let's say you want to knock out a satellite then you want to use a non-kinetic means. I'm talking about things like cyber strikes or jammers or these electromagnetic weapons that are increasingly coming online that essentially just fry the circuitry um, of the satellite but keep the physical machinery intact so that you don't have all this debris. Well, now you, you have to deal with just the sheer numbers of satellites in orbit, which in some ways it gives them, gives them a degree of safety in numbers. And that brings us to the second topic I wanted to mention today, which is Starlink itself. SpaceX is actually launching two big Starlink missions this month, one from Cape Canaveral Space Force Station, and then the other from Vandenberg, which is a Space Force base in California. Elon, back in the day, had given Ukraine free services, essentially donated them, and then he threatened to take them away and said SpaceX couldn't afford this anymore. And that effectively brought the Pentagon to the table in terms of inking a more... um, hard and fast deal back in June, but, you know, there's a bigger question here, especially in the the context of Elon Musk threatening to pull Starlink satellites out of Ukraine, which the Ukrainian war effort was was and is very much reliant upon. And it, it essentially centers around this. What does it mean when U.S. foreign policy increasingly leans on the whims of tech billionaires like Elon Musk? Uh, you know, I'm picking on him here, but it's it's not just him, right? But in this case, he's the one who holds some some serious leverage when it comes to Ukraine. In any case, this is kind of the fundamental question because it's not that the United States has never relied on the commercial sector before in the prosecution of its of its foreign policy or war efforts, but there does seem to be an increased leaning on the commercial sector in space in a way that's just different. Um, and yes, it brings about a degree of innovation and production at scale and, and helps with all the groundbreaking advancements, but it might also do so, as evidenced by you know, what we saw recently in Ukraine, by sacrificing a little bit of an element of control here. Um, it's something at least to consider here as, as we sort of step into this next phase of this intersection between public and private partnerships and the real sort of long-term priorities of uh, U.S. policymakers and how they do strategy relative to their emerging rivals, particularly in Beijing, and how beholden they are um, to the interests and whims of those within the private sector. It's not to say that there's not a lot of really amazing things that are now happening as a result of this commercial sector, but in the context of all of it, we'd be remiss not to at least consider that there are some limitations in terms of broader U.S. policy, especially when it comes to war fighting, as space becomes much more of a domain that's filled with not only private sector players, but militaries. 
in any case, that's pretty much what I wanted to talk about today, sort of raising that question, which I think is a valid one um, as we kind of get into this next phase of, of both commercial and the geopolitical sides of the space race. Thanks for listening to my spiel. And if you like this podcast, make sure to subscribe. Until next time, thanks again.